Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available if their child lived in another city around the world. And we have some great shows lined up for you guys. We're traveling back to London, UK. Can't get enough uh, youth soccer in London. So that's going to be a cool show. We've also traveled to Vancouver, Canada. And that's an interesting show just across the border uh, for our U.S. listeners. And we have, we're slated to go to Hanoi, Vietnam. And that's going to be a wonderful show. That's a city that um, I've never been to. And it's going to be a cultural exchange with a club director out there who not only is directing a club in uh, Hanoi, but is also a German uh, national. So he can tell us about youth soccer in Germany. And he's just done a lot of wonderful things. So I think that show is going to be pretty exciting. And this show is brought to you by Anytime Soccer Training. I am so proud of what we've been able to accomplish with Anytime Soccer Training. We're getting more and more clubs and teams joining the platform. And what that means is more and more kids are getting better at home. Now the kids have a resource that has over 5,000 training videos that cover everything. And they're empowered because the average video is less than five minutes, goes step by step, introduces one move at a time, has a slow motion demonstration and timer, right? And, and, and coaches are even more empowered to support their children because now they have real data. They can see how many videos each player is doing by month, by, by week, by year. They can set training homework goals, they can see how much time each player is spending uh, training outside of team training. And all of this is ranked on a leaderboard. So the coaches are empowered now to really uh, engage the kids um, outside of team training in a way that doesn't take up too much of their time. They can even send them messages directly inside of the app. So check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more about what we do. You can join for free and you mentioned, and you remember I mentioned those teams. You can even create unlimited teams and upload your logo for free forever. So check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more what we do and join the application for free and you'll get more content like this. And now let's get on to the show. And speaking of content like this, after listening to this show, you may say to yourself, I don't want content like this <laughs> because this show is going to be all about contrarian views that I have about youth soccer. And so let me go ahead and give one of those advisory warnings. You know how you, when you get ready to watch something and it's disturbing, say like on Dateline or whatever, or uh, on the news, they always say, viewer discretion is advised. Well, this is one of those shows where viewer discretion is advised. I want you guys to understand this show is produced for entertainment purposes. It's also produced to go to places that I rarely hear people going to on social media to stoke the flames of conversation because I want to put it on the airways and have people listen to it 
so that we can then get back onto the show during interviews and discuss some of the provocative things I'm about to say. And before I jump into this list of provocative contrarian ideas I have, let me give some context to our new listeners. Again, my name is Neil Crawford. I'm the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. I have two sons who are really into youth soccer. But, um, but before that, I did not grow up playing soccer as a child. Not only did I not grow up playing soccer, grew up watching soccer. I didn't even know our high school had a soccer team until my buddy appeared in our yearbook as a soccer player. And he was my buddy because he used to give me a ride to our American football practice. But his parents happened to be Italian. And so he was our kicker. And in retrospect, as an adult now looking back at it, he was totally a soccer player <laughs> who was just kicking, kicking field goals and punting for us. It's, but I just viewed him as a football player who didn't have any football skills, so they just put him as kicker. But he actually used to wear the soccer shoes uh, on the football field. So now in retrospect, I didn't, but I didn't even know they were soccer shoes. I just thought that was just, just a weird guy. But in retrospect, now I knew now he was actually a soccer player playing football. So I had not even seen a soccer game until I moved to the UK. Well, I did spend some time in Asia where I watched it a little bit and then into the UK where I really fell in love with the game. And I tell people all the time that falling in love with soccer as an adult is like maybe learning, say, chess or some other really popular global uh, game. And you're like, oh, I see why people like this so much, right? That you didn't understand at first, why people would find it so enjoyable. Then when you learn as an adult, you're like, oh, I see why people love this game. Well, that was my experience with soccer in the UK, but I only watched it at the EPL level, championship level as an adult. I didn't start thinking about youth soccer development at all until my sons were born and they got into it. And that then um, um, kicked off this whirlwind of me uh, learning about youth soccer and trying to learn to the best I can about youth soccer development and to a much more extent how as a parent I can support my child uh, in this whole competitive youth soccer space. So that's kind of how this all started. Well, because I was an adult learning youth soccer from an adult's perspective, not as someone who grew up with it, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about soccer before I got into it. I would just consume as much information as I could. I did have my assumptions and opinions from life and business and that kind of stuff, but I would just, you know, absorb as much youth soccer stuff as I could um, from an adult perspective. So the way I would describe it is it was almost like I learned soccer as a different, as a second sport. So just like you learn language as a second sport, I learned soccer as a second sport. But what I found slowly as I got into it, more and more as I got into it, what I began to realize is most of the conventional wisdom that was shared, I did not agree with 100%. Or I agreed with in theory, but there were major caveats, so many major caveats that I needed to add that it changed what they were saying in a material way. Now, let's, again, let's, uh, another disclaimer. In many occasions, people are just sharing their free thoughts and it's not their job to write a uh, 
an encyclopedia so that Neil Crawford can go through it and and understand every nuance that they're trying to explain. So a lot of times people are just saying, hey, this is my idea. But if you ask follow up questions, they will go there and answer them. So this is not to say that these contrarian views I have directly relate directly are directly in response to an accurate depiction of what someone else is feeling. I am saying the totality of the contrarian views that I hear and the lack of nuance that comes with them has made me say, you know what, there's an opportunity here for me, at least when talking to my, to my sons, to add some nuance. And then now that I've created any child soccer training, I'm sharing some of that nuance through the podcast, okay? And in this particular show, I'm going to list out a lot of contrarian views I have so that our listeners some of, them, so some of you can, can laugh at them. Some of you can become irritated. And hopefully some of you want to come on the show and tackle a few of these and we can just have fun with it. You can add your own perspective. That I think that would be really fun. All right, so let's, let's get on with it. The first contrarian view I have is I don't think structured games are particularly significant in a youth soccer player's development. Now, let me go ahead and add the initial caveat. I stretch it all the way about to, to 16, 17 years old. We could probably debate on that, but definitely the foundation phase. I just don't think structured games matter that much at all. I don't think it matters, you know, 11 v 11, 7 v 7, 3 v Structured games don't matter. I don't, I just, don't think they're an important part relative to what they're doing Monday through Friday in the development process. I'm a little indifferent about them, barring some extreme, right? Again, I because I don't think structured games matter that much, then there's an, an umbrella of, that's an umbrella. And then there are a lot of things that I think don't matter that much, relatively speaking, within the structured game context that I often hear do matter. So for example, I don't think playing time, barring an extreme, matters that much. 50% playing time, whether you play the whole game, play a little bit, I just don't, I don't think it matters. I don't, not within a structured game context. I think again, what not compared to what you do on Monday through Friday. Um, to the extent playing time makes your child unhappy, right? That matters. So happiness matters, right? But if, but it, I just don't think it matters that much. So, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop all of these and I won't offer a lot of evidence to why I feel that way in these shows. This is just food for shop thought. And then I might circle back and try to do a show where I give more and more um, context, but I just don't think it matters that much in terms of development. In other words, you give me uh, a child who is doing things that I do think matters Monday through Friday. I don't care if they play 10 minutes a, uh, a game on these structured games. I'm rolling with that child versus a child who doesn't do the things I think matters Monday through Friday and is playing 90 minutes of a structured game. I just don't think that matters. So then another caveat to this, I do believe play matters. Right. So playing the game matters, competing matters, all this other stuff matters, but the structure that we layer onto it, 
I don't think in the format of that structure, I don't think I don't think matters that much. So then we go on to say, I go on to say, I don't think dribbling or the lack of dribbling or dribbling around people or where you dribble. I don't think that I hear this a lot, but I don't think that matters relatively speaking when it terms in terms of foundation level, especially foundation level play uh, players. Um, development process so it's not uncommon for me to hear people say hey it's important that you have a club or you're in a club that allows you to dribble a lot through these games and I mean dribble a lot in these games and make mistakes dribbling all this kind of stuff it's not going to hurt fine knock yourself out you can dribble all you want or you cannot dribble all you want um I just don't think in terms of the drivers of development that's I don't think it it's a like to have it's great if you do it but if you don't do it i don't think it matters that much at all um not in these structured games i do believe dribbling matters practicing dribbling matters confidence on the dribble matters um uh, dribbling in a, an opposed and unopposed setting matters dribbling while you're playing matters i think all of these foundational things can be achieved without the structured game format if that's what you really really want to do um and so that's really what i'm getting at i don't think formats in this regard matter um compared to the the foundational that base level that that more um pure areas of development and formats of development i think that's the biggest driver of of um of development not these particular formats so then I go on to say, I don't think any particular format matters in a particular or, or in structured format matters in a particular way. So again, I'm trying my best to lose my entire audience, right? So I'm trying to lose you guys. And if I don't lose you by the end of the podcast, I have not done my job. That means I don't find futsal to be particularly um, anything. I think it's a great, great, wonderful way of continuing to get more touches. I think anything you do has some intrinsic advantages and some intrinsic disadvantages. But I always say, you know, my wife is Ethiopian and, you know, I spent time in Africa and I'm, yes, I have a just, I hate to use the, my best friend is African type thing, but, you know, I living in London, you kind of get around a lot of different people and my, friends in those countries wouldn't have known a futsal court if you if it fell on their heads and they're still masterful on the ball and can do all the things they need to do and go on to do great things and so I think it's great anytime we can innovate anytime we can get more and more people playing something there's some whatever I just don't think it's anything magic right I think the time that if you told me I play futsal from day sun up to sundown, then I think that matters, right? So yeah, if you play in anything, if you play in structured games, you know, sun up to sundown, yeah, that matters. So I think a lot of times we forget that anyone who says they credit this particular format is uh they're correct, but they also have they're probably giving less weight or not explaining that it's that format and the amount of time they spend. So to the extent that any format allows a person to get more time, then I'm fine with that. Cause I think it's a found that's 
I think the time is probably a bigger driver than the actual format of what they're doing. But if the format allows the person to get more time. So for example, my son's, my older son does this free play thing every Monday. Now, now that he's old enough to go on his own, he does his free thing, play thing that they organize every Monday at, uh, at one of our local fields. I just drop them off and then I come back and get them. So he ain't going to go do that at, at some training session. So to the extent that any format uh, encourages you to play more, then I'm all for it. But I, I don't want, I would not want the person in the, say, in the Midwest that has no, that does not have access to certain structure types of formats to, or leagues or whatever, which we're going to talk about. I would not, I would not want them to feel like they're at a material disadvantage because I think what really is going to drive um, them is not, drive their development is not all these other things. These are, if at, a, at best, they complement or a bonus. I mentioned leagues. I don't think the leagues that these structured games operate in are particularly um, important. So it's not uncommon for me to hear league promoters express how creating this league is going to promote development in some way that only a league can do. You know, I, I just don't think it's that, I don't think it's that important. I don't, I, you know, I'm just being contrarian. I think you can get there with, with or without the league, have these leagues, just start it. So I know you can get there just like anytime soccer training, just start it. And people were, people hadn't even heard of it, let alone using it and becoming technical. There were, there were technical and accomplished people way before these leagues started. So I think, you know, it's nice, nice, great, but it's not. It's not as important as the other stuff you do Monday through Friday. All right, so I'm moving on. I don't think, this is a big one, so drum roll. I don't think iron sharpens iron in the context of youth soccer development in the way it's often expressed. So as early as, I mean, yeah, my sons couldn't, have, my older son couldn't have been much more much older than eight years old. And my buddies were trying to convince me to take him out of this little small club that he's in that didn't even, didn't, back then they didn't even play games and put him into another environment, not understanding the training environment, right? of the, irrespective of the training environment, because they felt like the kids in that other training environment would make my son better because my son would now be competing which against kids that they perceive to be at a higher level right and i just don't think you soccer development i don't think that's what the other kids barring some extreme you know i just don't think it matters that much and i'm saying extreme so for example in my younger older son's club now both my son's club but definitely my older one older ones but you my younger one too they'll do training pools right and the pools, at some point, the coaches have to make a decision on how they divide the pools up. Now, my older son's club doesn't communicate to us, Neanderthal parents. So I don't know all the logic. So we have to read between the lines sometimes on how the pools are divided because it, it, it can vary. My younger son's club, they do communicate to us um, a lot. I think a lot of communication, you know, I don't think it matters, but which we're going to get to. 
but they they clearly lay out their logic behind how they separate the training pools. Um, and this just puts our, us parents in a frenzy trying to understand, oh, my son is this, this group, and, blah, blah, blah. and I don't think it matters, right? I, you put my son in this group, put him in that group, put him in that group, barring some extreme, but I have to talk so many of my buddies off the ledge when their child is in a particular pool and they think they should be in this pool, but they're in that pool. Barring an extreme, I just don't think it matters that much. Close your eyes and think about your childhood and athletic experience, right? You know, the marginal, you know, skill of the kids you were playing with, it just, that's just not, that's just not what drives development. It's, it's a lot of other stuff that happens Monday through Friday, but not what other people are doing. In other words, focus on yourself. You, there's so many things you got to get there. There's so many things that have to take place with what you're doing that what the other kids are doing or how good the other kids are or how good you think the other kids are. I don't think it matters. I don't think iron sharpens iron in that way. I do think there is something to be said when you get to what we call the performance level where, where you know, your the expectation is now you've, I've taken you as far as you can and now you need to perform. I do think at that point, you need to be at a level of, to where that, that reflects the, level that you're going to be expected to perform as almost like an adult and so mentally you need to understand what that level is and you need that feedback loop based on your actual performance but kids when especially those younger foundation phases they change so much and you're not really focused on game performance in that way and even if you were focused on game performance which you shouldn't be and you can't they can't internalize it and or appreciate it in the way that an adult does. So I just don't think it matters that much. If anything, I would even go even further. Maybe this is a separate contrarian one. I actually think their success in these formats is more important than any particular challenge. So that's a contrarian view. I think being successful at an early age matters more than being facing too much adversity when it comes to youth soccer because you're playing against kids who I guess would be at a higher skill or experience level than you now because I think if you can get some early success early on that's going to fuel the confidence for you to go on and do more things and I think it's also going to motivate you to want to put in more time because you're having early success and our kids mentally are just not as sophisticated as an adult and not going to go out there saying well yeah, but you know, this kid is born in February and they're in the 90th percentile. And later when they, when I get, they don't think like that. They just look at it like I'm, I suck or I'm really good. And that's how people think about it. And so I, if I, if I had to go there and say to kids, what the kids are doing, external factors like that do in fact impact it, I would err more on the caution of make sure your child is in an environment that they are relatively successful because like I tell my older son all the time, you're going to have plenty of time in this life to struggle. And so enjoy these first few years of soccer because trust me, they're out there. So I hope that made sense, but that's just a contrarian view I have. Iron, I don't think iron shoppers iron. I think if anything, use that opportunity to help build confidence, uh, help your child get more time on the ball and be in the right environment where they are motivated to continue to do things. All right. I don't think clubs or teams, whatever, need to travel very far to find um, 
competition. Of course, this falls apart in areas where they're in really small towns or maybe in the Midwest where the you know, population density is not high. But in these metropolitan cities, and I'm throwing like, I'll use some examples like a Raleigh or Charlotte, Atlanta, pretty much anywhere on the East Coast. Um, it's not rural. DC, New York, and then obviously out in the West Coast, any of those places or any of these you know, mid-tier to medium-sized to large cities, I just don't think you need to travel that far to, to meet to find good competition. I don't know who came up with this. I know the country is big, but I just don't think you, I just don't think it's necessary. So if you're traveling because it's you want the experience, because I've done that quite often. If you're traveling for other reasons, that's fine, but I just don't think it's a key. If you're traveling because you just enjoy it, that's fine too. You want to see different things, that's fine. But I don't think you need to go, uh, my son doesn't need to go to Florida to find good competition. He has enough competition right here and he don't even need to go further out of, within North Carolina. He got enough competition right here in Raleigh, Cary, Durham, um, Chapel Hill to, to, to do whatever he needs to do. And to the extent that you have this team that you think is, you know, we're ranked number this and that, we can't find competition, we're beating everybody. I think there's an opportunity. If that's if 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 that is the case, just create a couple all-star teams and play them. I think you, I think we can be there, especially if we mix it up with a few kids who are older. So I think we can do things to give a, the competitive landscape that we want without um, having to travel so far. But again, I don't even think this competitive landscape matters in the way that it's emphasized in the first place, not in this structured way, uh, not in these structured games or structured leagues. So I would definitely be less inclined to the best of my ability. I would try my best to avoid any league that, that requires a tremendous amount of travel because I just don't think it's necessary. But that's not a knock on anyone who does it because we have to make hard choices. My younger son as we speak, is in a league that's going to have me traveling around and he's only nine. And so, you know, I'm living it as well, right? So, so that's, that's that. Um, here's another hot topic, hot one that's going to, I'm going to lose a few people if I haven't lost you already. I don't think coaches, clubs, or teams can focus on individual development in the way that I often hear it touted and I know you're probably saying what do you mean by often hear it touted I mean I don't know what you hear Neil and this is an assumption to say you hear some of the same marketing messages that I hear which is sort of like you know the thing about us is we focus on individual development or we focus on individual development during the foundation phase but I don't think you can do that I think that's a fool's errand I think just like um, we send our kids to school into a classroom that teacher, we, their understanding is that teacher's time is divided amongst the kids and the teacher does the best she can or the teacher does the best he can to give each kid some attention, but it would be totally different experience if the, if the class was a class of one, right? That's why you have tutors and that's why you help your kids with your homework because you're helping that individual child with their individual needs and so that doesn't mean that the individuals do not get better in a team environment. Of course they do, that's the whole point. But I just worry that we are in the world of educating parents where 
we're just throwing stuff out there that just can't possibly be the case, right? And I actually don't even know what that means per se, but if I had to wave a magic wand and then you said to me, no, we are focused on individual development, then I would, if I, if I ran a club, I would have to drastically change the format of how we deliver this service if that is my priority. I mean, drastically change how things are done um, if that's my priority, which may or may not be practical, number one. And so therefore I would be very hesitant to um, uh, give people the impression that we're focused on individual development. I would be more inclined to say, this is kind of what we try to do. And this, and in order to reach your full potential, in order to reach your full uh, potential development, let me explain to you that 97% of the time you're not going to be with us. And so it's what you do as an individual outside of this team, con these team um, um, environments that are really going to accelerate your development as an individual. I mean, I, that's, that's basically what I tell people all the time. Like, I can't do but so much. I got this many kids and this is what it is. So there's concepts I need to get across as a unit. And so if you really want to get better, here's the playbook on things you can do beyond what I as a coach can do with you in this limited amount of time I'm with you. And, but I do often hear people say, hey, I'm focused on individual development. And I just don't know how that's, that's why I would like to invite our coaches on. I don't, I don't know how that's, how that's possible, at least in the way that it is presented often. Okay. Um, keep, I'm keeping going on. I don't think parents or a person who has offspring is particularly crazy. Just like I don't think coaches are particularly sane. I don't think adults without children are particularly crazy or sane. I just, I don't think parents are, I don't think the issues that we have are unique uh, on the sidelines are unique to parents, at least in the way that it's presented. I don't think parents are ruining anything. I don't think they're ruining youth support. I think parents today spend a disproportionate amount of their time um, worried about their children's feelings. And this is just my opinion compared to our parents. I think our parents in that generation was much harder on us than the parents today, right? I don't think parents are particularly crazy. So you might say, well, Neil, well, then what explains all this horrible behavior on the sidelines that we see? Well, um, number one, I think people are irrational. People are emotional. And when you put irrational and emotional creatures in an environment that triggers that biology, evolution, chemistry, then some of them are going to act out on those, what they call in finance, animal spirits. It's just a mathematical equation. If I put 100 people in a certain environment, some of them are going to act out unless you, a small percentage of them are going to act out unless you put safeguards in place to prevent this behavior. And so I think that's kind of what you're seeing. Now, that's not to say excuse bad behavior by adults. So in other words, you should not be yelling at a referee. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying it's going to happen unless you put safeguards in place. And, um, and, and then people just have to suffer the consequences of that behavior. It's just the way it is. 
And so I'm saying that to say that, but if you approach this as a moral issue, like, oh, these are bad people who are doing something that good people should not do, then it's going to be very, in my opinion, it's going to be very difficult to solve the problem because I don't think they're bad people. I just think they're acting the way that you would expect people to act given this environment. Um, some of the people to act. So if I got, again, if I got a hundred, you're going to get two bad apples and those two bad apples are going to be filmed and then people are going to share it and they're going to say parents are crazy. It's like clockwork. If you got a thousand, you're going to get, you know, 10 bad apples. It's like clockwork. It's going to happen over and over and over again because of the nature of how people are. It has nothing to do with parents. It's just the way people are. There's a lot of science around uh, watching your own kid play and what that does to you um, psychologically. Uh, there's just a lot of science around the emotions that people feel when they watch themselves or watch their children that we have to be aware of. It's not that people are crazy, this behavior is expected. And so therefore there's things that we have to do to prevent this behavior from happening. There's no, it's not a coincidence that England doesn't suffer from, for the most part, hooliganism in the stands. It's not because fans today are more enlightened than fans were 40 years ago. It's just they put measures in place to prevent this behavior from happening. All right, and that's not in a comparison to say that English football is synonymous and fan behavior is synonymous to parents. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, got a problem, and it's not unique to these people. You can solve the problem, but you got to make some tough decisions. Which then goes on to my next point. I, I personally don't think it's the should be the coach's job to deal with parents on the sideline. I hear this a lot. Oh, the coach should step up and do this and this is. I don't think it's the coach's job to do that. Most people, that's the coach. I want the coach focus on the kids, number one. Most people are not particularly confrontational. Um, the incentives are not aligned. In, in other words, the coach has to has to straddle that balance of trying to pr pr promote a healthy and positive relationship with the parents. But then you're also asking them in the heat of the game to go over and deal with parents. And I have had to do that and have been yelled at on more than one occasion. As a parent who has had to ask parents to calm down, right, on my own team, hey, take a chill pill. Now I'm not liked. I'm fine with that, but that's just my personality. And then because I advocate for the kids over being liked by an adult, right, I had to make that decision. And that's just my personality. I rarely have to go there as a parent because that's not really my role. But occasionally it gets to the point where I do have to say, hey, man, take a chill pill. And then I'm not liked, but the person stops. And so the kids or safe and I'm not liked and it's just a sacrifice I have to make. And then I had to, I have had to do that as a coach and no one likes doing that. I don't meet any coaches like, yeah, you know, the favorite thing I love about coming to games is I get to go and tell parents to be quiet or stop yelling at the kids. I love that. And it's just not a nice feeling and it's just not a natural thing to do. I don't, most people don't want to be confrontational and they definitely don't want to confront people doing a soccer game. And so I just don't think it should be part of the coach's job description, but I often hear that people want that to be part of the coach's job description. And even when it is part of the job description, which I don't want it to be a part of the job description, who is gonna blame the coach for not wanting to go in there and fight with a, another 40 year old who was yelling at their kid? So even if it is, I mean, I don't wanna be the person holding a coach accountable for not going over 
over there confronting unruly parents. That's, that's, that's an awful thing to, for me anyways. So that's a contrarian view to say, we whatever solution we come up with, if you believe this is a problem, whatever solution you come up with or you decide to come up with, I just don't think it is. It, has, it can't involve the coach being the enforcement, one of the enforcement apparatuses of this policy. All right, moving right along. I'm try to speed this up. Here's another very contrarian one. I don't think educating parents is particularly important in terms of the development of a player, right? You know, hey, if, you, if, you're, if you're interested in, my, in the process of development, I'm happy to share that with you. But I just don't think it's that important for you to understand my process, right? Now, what I do think is important is educating you on what you need to do uh, when, you, when you're not with me. So if you want to say educating parents on what they need to do beyond what I can offer as a coach, that's important, right? So here's the playbook that you need to execute at these competitive levels if that's what you, you know, if that's what you're inclined to do, this is what you need to do. But you understanding my process of development is not as particularly as important as development. If you understanding my process of development is needed for you then to go on and be engaged, bring the child to practice on time and all that other stuff, then I guess maybe it's a secondary thing. But if you do the things I ask you to do, and I'm speaking like I'm a coach, do the things I'm asking you to do, whether you understand them or not, the child is going to develop. I don't think you need to be educated on the game. I don't think you need, my wife don't know none of the rules. My wife don't come to have the practices. She couldn't name five positions on a soccer field. And our son is uh, ticking along. And she and so her knowledge of the game is completely irrelevant to my son's uh, soccer development. Now, what I do at home is extremely relevant to it, but I could do this stuff at home regardless of the club and their process. I'm going to do that stuff regardless. So I hope you understand what I'm trying to say that I don't I would not want um, our clubs to invest a tremendous amount of time in trying to teach parents to X's and O's of soccer or teach parents about development. I, I don't know if that matters that much. OK, so I'm trying to offend everybody. I hope I've gotten to you so far, but I got about three more of these if I hadn't gotten to you yet. Hopefully I can irritate you by the time I'm finished. All right, here's another one. We are not in Brazil. We're not in Iceland. We're not in Argentina. We're not in Germany. We're not in London. We're not in uh, South Africa. We're not in Ghana. You know, we're not in Hong Kong. We are in America. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not in America, then of course, just put America, just replace America with wherever you're living. And what that means is to solve the youth problems that we have in youth soccer, especially at those ultra competitive levels, will require um, solutions that um, are adapted to the situation that we're in right now. So our neighborhoods are organized in a certain way. Our culture is a, a, a certain type. The popularity of soccer in our country is different than the popularity of soccer in other parts of the world. And we have to understand that. And then we have to come up with solutions that fit our situation. It's not uncommon for me to hear people lament, lament on what they're doing in Brazil, what they're doing in Argentina, 
what they're doing in Ghana, but we're not there, we're here. So we gotta come up with solutions that work for us. So some of the challenges we have, for example, is the way our neighborhoods are set up. But I believe, and I've seen this with my own eyes, when you build it or you create spaces for communities to play, those places are packed. And so, and we do have bountiful resources, even though our city governments are stretched, so I'm not suggesting that. But we do have resources where we can invest in more parts and rec, more small community fields and that kind of stuff. Um, but that, so that may be a solution, that's a one solution that's unique to, this, to, to America. And there are many other things like that. But the bottom line is, I think sometimes we get caught up in romanticizing what's going on around the world and lamenting on how we can't, how that's not happening in the States instead of dealing with the reality of the situation that we're in, in the States and trying to make the most out of our um, current situation. All right, move right along. Here's another big one. I don't believe pro-real, especially these adult um, leagues is any particular savior. I don't think it's a particular savior because the structure of U.S. youth soccer in our country is so is so ingrained that even if you layer on pro real on top of it, it's not going to change foundationally what people are doing operationally, what people are doing on a day to day basis. Another reason is because, um, and we're going to get to this in another in, in another one that another caveat I have or contrarian view I have is because. Our parents are demanding club soccer as it is currently set up. And they don't, they would not demand the alternative that you kind of need in order for a pro real system to really flourish all the way down to the youth level. There are some tremendous benefits that will come from pro real. So I'm not saying that. I think one of the largest benefits is you would have a financial incentive, you would create a financial incentive for investors to invest in local clubs that would that would eventually have the potential to make the MLS ranks. So for example, we have a local semi-professional club uh, in our area called Tobacco Road. And it's in the heart of Durham. Well, that would be a wonderful investment opportunity if they had the potential to climb up the various ranks of um, uh, the US soccer pyramid. And if they had that type of investment, then they would be in a position to form a youth academy, even if, even if it starts at U13, form a youth, youth academy and then sell on players that they, they develop and then obviously try to get promoted with players that they retain. But I just said something that sounds simple, but it's actually really, really complicated because and difficult because you, now you got to find investors who don't, most investors want to return within a couple of years. Now you're trying to get an investor who is mission driven and just loves soccer, right? To then go out and invest in a club with the promise that hopefully one day, because now they got to go up like three or four tiers to make MLS. And it's just really hard to do. And now you got to try to do that on a wide scale. So it's, so what I guess I'm saying is, Pro, introducing, we have to understand introducing pro real to a to a uh, to a uh, league structure. This this new is a lot harder than pro real has been in existence for a hundred years, like it has in say in the UK, and it's just part of the 
it's part of the culture and it's part of the entire infrastructure. So again, I just wanna put that in a bow to say, yes, there are obvious benefits to any promotion relegation system, but I'm not so sure it's gonna get the massive benefits that people who support this um, suggest it will. And I don't think it's gonna get that massive uh, bump because number one, the situation is complicated. And number two, um, there's a lot of legacy stuff that's involved in the US soccer. And then number three, US parents tend to demand uh, a soccer service that ProReal just doesn't address, which then brings me on to, I think, um, my second to the last contrarian view. I actually don't believe that soccer in America is particularly expensive, right? I think soccer in America is relatively cheap and on par with the rest of the world. And we've all heard the Zaltans and other folks complain about how expensive soccer is in, in the States. But I think the contrarian view here and the nuance I've always been adding is, is, is we're not comparing apples to apples. So in other words, our club soccer experience provides more contact hours, professional coaches, these structured leagues that we're talking about and all uh, dedicated fields and all these other services uh, around youth soccer that in part drive up the cost. Um, and that's totally different, more services, a higher level of service than a kid would get in a grassroots environment, say in the UK. That's not to say that the kid in the grassroots environment is not receiving good coaching or not receiving, um, uh, uh, develop, not being developed. It's just that they're not receiving the same level of service they would be getting if the parent was paying $3,000 a year. And I think if we think about this reasonably, we know the math is the math. You, if, if someone is not offering a $3,000 a year per player service for free in the UK, it just ain't happening. That's not, no, that again, that's not speaking to how kids are developed, but they just not, it's not happening. It's definitely not happening on scale. So I think we're just comparing apples to oranges. I think the better comparison would be our recreational programs to their grassroots programs, but you can't really make that comparison because our recreational programs, if we had uh, a similar system as grassroots and just academies, our recreational programs would be filled with um, the best of the best players who didn't make an academy. So you can't make that direct comparison. But in my city, a recreational program costs as low as 20 something dollars if you go to the park and rec, but around 100 and something dollars a, a season at, at, for rec. But again, we depleted our recreational program. So, and no judgment because, but we demand a club service. And if we demand that club service, there's going to be costs associated with it. All right. So I'm moving right along. Another one, another contrarian view, and this is a bit longer than I expected, so I thank you for sticking with me. I don't think playing experience in and of itself is particularly important in foundation level uh, in the, yeah, is a particularly important or a particularly useful indicator in terms of the quality of coaching at the foundation level. Playing experience, like any experience, gives you a degree of content knowledge that you need that can help you. But I think, and they 
talk about this in education all the time, credentials and certifications and all that kind of stuff. They're indicators in terms of sort of what type of personality you have. But there are a lot of intangible things that make a teacher a good teacher, right? And a lot of that stuff is also learned on the job. And But I often hear, oh, I'm using this private trainer. Or I'm using this coach because he's, he's played at these levels and all this kind of stuff. And that obviously doesn't hurt. But there are other things that um, I look for uh, in a coach or I would recommend you look for in a coach that are more of an indicator of whether or not you're getting a, a, good, a, good, a good experience for your child or you're putting your child in a good, the best experience possible. Which then brings me to the next point. I believe that the club and their process of development and then all the things they do to manage the organization and manage their staff are more important in terms of the probability of, of being developed than the actual coach. In other words, what, what, really, what really good organizational leaders do is they create a process and they create a system and they create a culture where you can put anybody in as long as they have the requisite, the basic requisite, minimal requisite um, uh, experience and skills, and they're relatively motivated, not particularly motivated. You can put anyone in there and you can produce a successful outcome. If this person is really motivated and really ambitious and stuff, you're gonna produce an even better outcome, but at a minimum, you should produce a decent outcome as long as that coach follows the playbook. Now, so I think I'm more inclined to look at the club and their, their track record as opposed to trying to find any particular coach. It's not uncommon for me to hear parents say, hey, I like this club, but it really depends on the coach you or, or, or I'm indifferent about this club, but it really depends on the coach that you receive. Where I've always been a contrarian saying, man, I really would like to find the club that has the right process with the understanding that finding the right coach has so much variability and unpredictability. I'd rather reduce the risk of the coach not being good by finding um, stability in a club that holds coaches accountable, trains coaches, um, empowers coaches, gives them the resources that they need, um, helps shelter the coaches from all these crazy parents, all that other, all that stuff, right? That's kind of how I feel about that. Then. Um, so I don't want to lose my train of thought. So I talked about the, you know, I, the coach, I'd rather have a club that has the right process in place than trying to find the perfect coach. Cause I think that's very challenging for many parents. Now, going back to the um, comparing soccer across the, around the world, I don't think having lived, been fortunate enough to live in a lot of different countries, I don't think and in kind of touching on the playing experience, I don't think parents who happen to coach or players who happen to coach are uniquely more qualified than uh, the ones that are around the world are uniquely more insightful about youth development than American parents are about youth development in soccer. So it's commonly said, oh yeah, grassroots, um, they have volunteer coaches volunteer parent coaches but because these parents played the game and they understand this and they do that they they're better coaches they can run training sessions better and there's a couple of reasons why i don't think this is necessarily the case number one because i lived in these places and i know a lot of 
people and family and friends. And I rarely meet anybody who is in the soccer but knows how to develop you soccer players. Huh? I think that's a skill set you learn. No different than I went to school, but I don't know how to be a teacher. And then when I think about all of my American friends who played sports, even at a high level, um, they still have to go back and learn how to actually coach young kids. It just doesn't doesn't work that way. It doesn't translate that way. Like me, I, I, I learned, I played football and I have a very good understanding of the game because I played it, but I had to learn um, how to coach flag football, how to run the plays, what worked, what didn't work, and then how to be patient and da, da, da. And the same thing with basketball. I mean, I played basketball, but I don't, I had to go back and learn how to, what is a motion offense again? Remind me again what that is and, and what are the fundamentals? So I don't, you know, I didn't, the learning curve I had to learn how to coach football and basketball was about similar to the learning and baseball, which I grew up playing baseball, was similar to the learning curve I had for coaching soccer because you're an adult. You forget half that stuff. I don't care how much you watch other adults playing. Teaching kids how to play a sport and organizing training sessions, that's a whole different animal. And so I think in grassroots, it's just kids play all the time and they love the game and they're in an environment at home where the game is constantly being talked about, constantly being watched. And because of that, and because they're not being ripped out and taken to say a club environment, you're gonna have a different experience. But I just don't think, I think people who are good coaches invest time in learning how to be a coach and understanding the game is part of it. And you can acquire that information in a lot of different ways. Um, all things being equal. Yeah, of course, I probably want somebody who played the game, but that's really the case that all things are being equal. All things are being equal. All right. Um, I know I'm missing one. I'm trying to think of any more. I'm, I'm trying to make sure I irritate everybody. So I'm trying to make sure I, I didn't miss anyone, any, anything. But this has been a contrarian view and um, of how I feel about youth soccer. And I will leave with the last one that again is very controversial and just trying to make sure I tick all the irritation boxes. So here's the last one. I don't believe that youth soccer, especially those foundation phases, is particularly complicated. So I talked about um, parent education and we talked about a lot of the promises that, and things that are promoted to coaches, I mean, sorry, that are promoted to parents. And my fear is when it comes to parent education and when it comes to parent education about soccer, my fear is it's presented to us as, oh, this is very complicated. And you just gotta, just gotta let the process play out because it's so complicated. It's hard for you to understand. And you can't look at little Johnny this year and then look at little Johnny next year and, and see improvement or evaluate anything because it's so complicated. It may take seven years. I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that complicated. And so it's like, this is not my last one. I have another one as well. I don't think it's particularly complicated. And I think the real value add when you um, are explaining something to somebody is taking something that has a lot of moving parts and distilling that down to the things that matter, right? So if I was running a club and it's easy for me to sit here and say this hypothetically, but um, so I, I accept that. But if I were running a club and I had to do some parent education, I would dumb it down to a few bullet points and we would all sort of, uh, uh, come together on that, right? Like, hey, this is what we're working on. This is what you need to understand. And this is how I'm gonna, this is how I'm gonna measure it. 
these are anecdotal ways you can measure it. This is sort of what we're looking for. This is our priority. These are our priorities right here. Right, here's your index card because it should fit on the index card. You remember those things. And I don't care if I was explaining it to Pep Guardiola or I was explaining it to my wife. Both of them would be able to understand within a couple of minutes what we're trying to accomplish. I don't think it needs to be that much more complicated than that. And then if you want to talk about anything in more detail, office hours are between five, you know, 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. or whatever. We can talk about it in more detail. But big picture, this is what we're trying to accomplish. You know, I, I think I think as an industry, present company included, we have an opportunity to simplify the messaging that we uh, send to parents, not necessarily uh, make everything sound so 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 complicated. All right, and drum roll. I and here's another contrarian view I have. While I don't care about winning or losing in the way that I think most people agree, so that's not particularly contrarian. I do but believe there's a relationship between game performance right, and what is happening in the training pitch Monday through Friday, all things being equal, meaning, no, if I train you one day and I've been training this team for a year, no, there's no relationship. But all things being equal, I think the better the training environment, the more likely it is to see a better game performance. And I often hear that there is at least I'm given the impression, it could be a wrong impression, that there's no relationship. Or if there is a relationship, that relationship is misleading or you can't read. But I actually think if you sitting there watching, you know, if I'm watching training and then I'm watching 20 something games and I don't care about the format or whatever, I probably should see some improved game performance because as a result of what's going on in the training pitch. And I just feel like some somewhere along the line that's been um uh it's been explained to us that no 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 don't 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 your eyes can deceive you don't look at what's happening on the training uh what's happening during these games because that has no relationship to the training environment and i don't i don't know if that's necessarily the case so hopefully i've irritated you uh through this podcast this is just a fun one to say hey here are some ideas i had i just want to push the envelope and really be controversial on this one and I really want to stoke the flames, um, stoke the flames. And then I want to get people on that can help us understand some of these contrarian views from the perspective, from their perspective, and we can just have a conversation about it. Uh, I think that would be fun. All right, guys, this is Neil Crawford, Inside Scoop, uh, founder of Anytime Soccer Training. Let's get better together.